Well, welcome everybody to the LSE, and uh, it's good to see a lot of you here. My name's Howard Glenister, and I'm Professor of Social Policy Emeritus uh, at the school. Um, and I think I should say straight away, I think you probably already know this, but uh, Paul Pearson is not able to be with us uh, in person, though he will be with us um, because he's been uh, un quite unavoidably um, prevented from coming from America. But he will be with us by video link. So we, we can look. Here he is, indeed. Here he is. <laughs> Uh, I, that, it's marvellous to know this system is all working. So, Now, if we pass on from the technicalities of today, which I'll return to, um, just let me explain a little bit about what this uh, event is, is about and why particularly uh, we're celebrating today two things. The first has been a highly successful piece of research collaboration uh, between... Uh, on the T.H. Marshall programme uh, between Anglo-German actors, if you like. The Volkswagen Foundation have generously financed an exchange of young scholars uh, between us and uh, universities at Bremen, Berlin and Cologne, and we've handled the administration this end, and those uh, universities have handled the administration that end. And it's been a very productive exchange. Uh, since 2004, there have been 21 uh, Marshall Fellows, and they've been able to make, I think, a really significant contribution to our common understanding and scholarship. And that has been very encouraging, and uh, it's coming to an end, but it's been a very good uh, collaboration. And the second reason we're here today is to celebrate the publication of the Oxford Handbook uh, of the Welfare State, which you may have seen outside. Now, as you can appreciate, that also involved a huge amount of collaboration. You've only to see its size, 902 pages, to realise that this was a major collaborative enterprise. And copies are available outside, and I think at a kind of reduced rate, so do see if you can uh, pick it up on your way out. It won't be a small change, but uh, it's there available to, to look at and think about. Now, these two projects have been linked by the extraordinary energy of Stefan Liebfried uh, and colleagues at the University of Bremen, Transstate Research Centre and the Centre for Research and Social Policy. Now, T.H. Marshall, who gave his name to the fellowships, uh, must have lectured uh, frequently in this very hall. Um, and, of course, his work has been a kind of conceptual bedrock for much social policy comparative research in the last two or three decades. And that contribution holds good, even if you take issue uh, with some of his interpretations of history or some of his uh, omissions, as uh, Josie puts it in her, in her little booklet, which was handed out uh, to you, I think, as you came in. Now, uh, do read it. I mean, it gives you a fascinating glimpse of Marshall's career and his links with Germany uh, during and after the Second World War, 
uh, and it gives you a fascinating glimpse of that and his past. But as she concludes, um, his basic argument may have more international resonance uh, today than it even did at the time he was giving those lectures in 1948. Now, T.H. Marshall's wife, Nadine, who attended the inaugural ceremony, sadly died last year, but we're thankful to her family for producing for us and enabling us to use some of the photographs, charming photographs, in that, in that little booklet. Now, Marshall claimed that in the 20th century, citizenship and the capitalist system were at war. And he also claimed uh, that the wars of religion have been succeeded by the wars of social doctrine. I think that might have been slightly premature, um, certainly the first part. Uh, but the second part, I think, is alive and kicking uh, the wars of words that we see going on in the United States as we speak. So I don't think we could really have had anyone better suited to reflect on the past and the future of social policy than Paul Pearson. Uh, he first discussed the consequences of the last economic crisis and the consequences of Mrs. Thatcher and uh, President Reagan in his book Dismantling the Welfare State? Question mark. And that, of course, was followed by a stream of writing on the new politics of the welfare state, a new politics that would be dominated, he argued, by retrenchment. Paul taught at Harvard and is now the John Gross Professor of Political Science at Berkeley. And tonight, he's going to reflect on welfare reform over the very long run, and there will be two responses. I'm very glad to see the second respondent is now perfectly on time here. Um, <laughs> uh, we do have our trouble. There are problems about international collaboration which aren't only intellectual. Um, so Anton Hemerick is uh, held high office working for the Scientific Council for Government Policy in the Netherlands and is now Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Amsterdam. So, welcome. And Julian Legrand has been Richard Titmus Professor of Social Policy here at the LSE, of course, for many years, and was sometime advisor to Tony Blair when he was Prime Minister. Now, after that, there were then questions from you and there will be a reception upstairs in the senior common room to which you are all invited. Uh, finally, I wanted to thank uh, Alfred Schmidt for the Volkswagen Foundation who administered the Marshall Program and has financed this evening. So that is enough of all of that. Um, now we want to pass across the Atlantic, if we can, and uh, it's over to you, uh, Paul. Thank you, Howard. Um, I, it's a peculiar arrangement, obviously, and uh, I can see and hear you perfectly, um, but I'm not completely confident that you can see and hear me perfectly. Well, uh, I see we, my, we my can. We're doing, we're doing it Stefan all. Leifried, yeah, yeah. though, in the front row, and so, Stefan, if, if you can't hear me at any point, maybe you give me a wave or something, but it's, it, I guess it looks like um, we're off to an okay start. Um, uh, thanks, Howard, for the, for the introduction, and, uh, of course, I want to begin with a apologies for the logistical disaster that has uh, kept me um, at the uh, far end of, of North America rather than being there uh, with you. I've been 
I've been looking forward to this occasion and this trip for a year, um, so I'm extremely disappointed uh, not to be there, um, to see a lot of old friends um, and uh, to meet people whose work I've read for many years. Um, but at least we can have this intellectual event and, um, and uh, hopefully get something out of that. Um, I want to just begin also by thanking the uh, incredible staff at the LSE uh, who helped to make it possible to put this connection together in the last 24 hours. Uh, Angie Mehta and Ann West uh, and others uh, really worked heroically to, to um, recover from, uh, from the debacle of, of this travel. Um, and I, I, I can start by saying this actually isn't the first time uh, that I've been on the receiving end of the generosity of the LSE staff uh, and uh, seeing their skill. Uh, 25 years ago, I arrived in London as a graduate student uh, and parked out in the LSE library for about six months uh, trying to make some sense of Thatcherism uh, and what was happening to the British welfare state. And so uh, this, was, this journey was going to be in part a, a homecoming for me. That was a, a formative event in my professional life. Uh, and uh, it was another sense of deja vu was going to come from the fact that we seem to be reliving uh, many of the same conflicts today. Once again, uh, a conservative government is uh, introducing uh, major cuts in social programs. And so uh, there's a way in which, even though that was 25 years ago, it, it feels like um, it's, we're still having the same story. Uh, what I want to do, though, today is rather than focusing on the events that are, are going on in England and actually in many countries uh, right now is to really take a step back and think about the welfare state in the long run. Um, to uh, revisit some of the questions that I asked in dismantling the welfare state uh, and in some ways uh, to suggest uh, satisfaction with some of the answers um, but, uh, but dissatisfaction with others. Uh, for a couple of reasons, I think this is a very good time uh, to take a step back and think about the long journey the welfare state has gone through in what is sometimes called the era of austerity, uh, which most would place as beginning around 1973 or the mid-1970s anyway, uh, and which came after a, a long era that is often referred to as the golden age, uh, the post-war period, say, 45. Uh, to 73, in which a major expansion of social programs uh, took place across the world of affluent democracies. Uh, one reason why I think it's a good time to step back uh, and think about what has happened is because uh, a lot of time has passed uh, since the age of austerity began. Uh, we were still early in that process when I began my research, uh, but now uh, one can think of the era of austerity as having lasted something like 35 years, uh, longer than the golden age itself. Uh, so a lot of time has passed, uh, and that allows us to have a certain perspective um, on macro-historical events that I think is very difficult uh, to achieve otherwise. And in, indeed, in, in my own scholarship, I've become increasingly uh, interested in the idea that we often uh, misconceive important social processes when we only focus on short-term changes, when we look at, take snapshots of what's going on at particular moments, 
uh, rather than thinking about long-term historical processes. Uh, so now enough time has passed that I think we can have that kind of perspective, or at least uh, we can come closer to it uh, than we could have uh, 10 or 20 years ago. The second reason why it's a good time to step back uh, is because we know much, much more about the welfare state than we did 20 years ago, than we did, for example, when I started uh, working on uh, that dissertation that turned into dismantling the welfare state. Uh, we're uh, here in part today uh, to celebrate an indication of how much more we know. Um, anybody who looks at this magnificent, uh, very large but magnificent book, uh, the Oxford Handbook on the Welfare State, uh, can't help but come away from it by realizing uh, that we just know tremendously more about social programs, uh, where they come from, how they change, what they do, uh, than we did a few decades ago. Uh, for those who sometimes question, and I'd include myself in this group, who sometimes question whether social science can ever make any progress on the big questions. I think a, a close look at the Oxford Handbook uh, can make you feel better about uh, the world of social science. Uh, where there is a, a dedicated and broad research program, uh, we can learn a lot. Um, we have more subtle theories about welfare state development than we had 30 years ago. Uh, we have much more detailed knowledge of what has happened to individual programs uh, and of the political dynamics that have occurred in different countries. And, and I'll be talking more about this uh, uh, over the course of this lecture, we have much, much better data that allows us to track what has happened to welfare states over time. Uh, we've moved from a world where basically we were working just with uh, raw spending numbers uh, to one in which uh, we can actually gauge what's happened to programs across many countries uh, over extended periods of time. Uh, so it's a good time for both these reasons uh, to take a look at the road that the, the welfare state has traveled. Uh, and I want I wanted to start by, and basically the focus in this lecture, is to come back to the fairly simple descriptive question I started with in dismantling the welfare state. Uh, what has happened to welfare states over this period? Uh, after 35 years of grappling with an atmosphere of austerity, uh, what has happened to social programs? Uh, the answer I'm going to give, as I said, is in some respects similar to the answer I gave 15 years ago but it, which, which is to argue that what is striking is how resilient welfare states have been. Um, but I'm going to try to push the question a little deeper towards the end of the talk uh, and give uh, a modified answer uh, that is in important respects, I think, uh, fairly different. Uh, and I want to begin uh, by uh, trying to think about this, what seems like a simple question, just what has happened to the welfare state? I want to begin by putting the era of austerity in context. What should our expectations be if we think about the welfare state as being on the cusp of, of this journey, going back to, say, the mid-1970s? And then imagine that we're going to fast forward 35 years. Uh, what should we expect will have happened to it? So this may seem like a strange exercise, 
but as I'll argue, I think it's quite useful uh, to think a little bit about what our expectations might be. And I want to do that um, by uh, taking two different approaches. First, I want us to take a look back, uh, and then, as I would put it, I'd like us to take a look sideways. And by back, I mean, let's take a look at the period that we sometimes call the golden age, roughly 1945 to 1975. Uh, one way to set our expectations for what happened during the era of austerity is to look at the previous long historical period, uh, just to get a sense of how much things can change uh, over an extended period of time. Now, at this point, I'm not sure whether you uh, are, are being shown on a screen the PowerPoint uh, slides or whether you just you have them on paper in front of you. I guess, um, okay, they're on, they're on paper. So um, if you could take a look at the very first figure um, at this point, which shows uh, for a series of programs, uh, a comparison between 1950 and 1980, and this is from data collected by Alexander Hicks. Uh, and it just gives you a rough sense for some major programs at what a dramatic, dramatic evolution took place in the structure of social programs uh, over a period of roughly three decades. Uh, and the same story is replayed uh, across many programs for many country, countries. Uh, a tremendous increase in coverage of social programs, a tremendous improvement in the generosity of those social programs. And I give some illustrations of this in the paper that I wrote uh, for, this, for this event, uh, but just to give you one quick illustration from the United States, in 1950, if you looked at the relatively small population of people in the United States who were re retired, who described themselves as being retired, the overwhelming majority of them reported that they, were, that they were retired because they had either been laid off from their job or because they were too sick to continue working. Right? So they had not retired in the conventional sense that we use today in a matter-of-fact way uh, because they had simply reached the age at which they had a secure income. Uh, and did not need or cho chose to leave the labor market and rely upon that, that secure income. Uh, so the, the very notion of voluntary retirement um, was essentially an alien notion for most citizens uh, at the beginning of the golden age. Uh, now clearly not so by the end of it, and that is just one a very dramatic example, I think, of how much the landscape of social welfare changed uh, and it's, it's part of why I think, for many of us, um, we are so interested in the welfare state because uh, we've observed its ability to transform uh, the, the nature of the social world, uh, the kinds of risks uh, that uh, citizens are exposed to, and the possibilities for protecting them from those kinds of risks. So just a reminder then of how dramatically social programs change during that era that we refer to as the golden age. So that, that's my quick look backward. Now what do I mean by looking sideways? Well, what I want to suggest is that we can think a little bit about set our expectations for what might have happened to the welfare state during the era of austerity 
by looking at other aspects of the social world and seeing how much they have changed over a period of 35 years or so. Uh, and in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to do this uh, relatively quickly. Uh, and I could start by just mentioning uh, that while I would uh, much rather not be in California right now, the mere fact that I can speak to you from California uh, is one illustration uh, of how much uh, the world has changed in the period since the 1970s. But let me get, list just a few of the many dramatic transformations that have taken place in the world of affluent democracies since the 1970s. Uh, dramatic increases in trade, fueled in part by technology, which have greatly increased uh, capital mobility. One of the most uh, entertaining books I've read recently is a book by uh, Mark Levinson called The Box, which is a history of the container revo containerization revolution, the development of standardized forms of transporting goods from ships through ports to rail cars or trucks, uh, which dramatically lowered the cost of transportation and had revolutionary effects on the organization of work and the distribution uh, of production uh, throughout the world economy. Uh, just one example of how technology has had uh, dramatic effects on modern economies. Uh, within the world of affluent democracies, there have been huge declines in manufacturing employment. Uh, a shift from manufacturing to services that in some ways has been as disruptive uh, as the shift uh, from agriculture to industry in an earlier era. There has been on the whole a significant slowdown in economic growth combined with generally higher rates of unemployment compared with the golden age, uh, all of this putting significant strain on welfare states uh, and government budgets. There have been huge increases in women's labor force participation. Remarkable changes in the ethnic and racial composition of most affluent democracies. Previously, homogeneous societies have become markedly more diverse. Already diverse societies have become much more diverse. There's been a revolutionary change in the age distribution of affluent democracies, connected to both steep declines in birth rates in most countries, uh, the birth rate in Southern Europe over this period fell in half. Um, and also unprecedented improvements in life expectancy, which have led to a general process of population aging. There have been substantial changes in family structure, including the increasing prevalence of single parent households in many countries with the associated heightened risks of poverty. These are just a few of the many dramatic changes that have taken place. Now, many of these changes, as you all know, could be expected to put great pressure on systems of social provision, in part because they put strains on budgets, and in part because they create what have been called new social risks. And I'm thinking here in particular of the wonderful work, series of books by Josta Esping Anderson, uh, but the same issue has been pursued by many scholars, uh, by creating new social risks that were not well addressed by existing social programs. So massive social and economic changes. There have been huge political changes 
as well. Would be one uh, prominent example. The dramatic expansion in the role of the European Union for countries who are members with its effects on economic and social policy. And most important, uh, this is uh, in some ways it's an economic and social change, though I'm talking about it here in political terms because I think arguably politically it has been so important. Uh, there's the decline uh, in labor unions in most affluent democracies. Uh, and here would be the point to look at the second slide, uh, which shows uh, union density rates across the OECD during this period. And you can see they're quite stable uh, through the 1970s, but then, to then begin to decline quite dramatically. And I emphasize uh, this change because there is an enormous body of research uh, associated maybe most closely with scholars uh, like Walter Corpy and John Stevens, uh, but many others, which has argued that, uh, that labor unions, the most organized voice uh, for ordinary citizens on economic matters, played an absolutely essential role in constructing the, the systems of social provision that developed, uh, especially in uh, the golden age. And so there's much reason to think that such a dramatic decline in labor unions might be consequential for systems of social provision. So that's my very quick look backwards uh, and sideways at what happened uh, both during the golden age to the welfare state and what happened in the more recent period uh, to some other important aspects of the social, economic, and political worlds. And all of this is meant to just set our expectations a little bit for thinking, what would we expect to happen to the welfare state over this period of roughly 35 years of austerity? Given how rapid we know that change in social programs can be from the previous period, and given what we know about the disruptive possibilities uh, for budgets, for um, other kinds of demands developing in society, uh, for levels of social solidarity and political support, uh, what would we expect to happen to welfare states? And what I want to just suggest, and we could discuss this and maybe argue about it, is that one might think that given these kinds of conditions, that there would be quite a bit of erosion in structures of social provision over this period. So now let's look a little bit more closely. And I want to start by just saying that even though I think we're in a much better position uh, because we know so much more about social provision than we did a few decades ago, we're in a much better position to address this question, I confess uh, that even 15 years after the publication of Dismantling the Welfare State, I don't think we've given uh, very uh, satisfactory answers. And I want to just mention uh, um, for each of the major strands of scholarship that have tried to deal with these questions, why I think that might be the case. Uh, for quantitative research on welfare state, I think the biggest states, I think the biggest problem is that there is a bias towards trying to explain variation. Right? The focus is on explaining 
as uh, statistical analysis helps us to do, why you might see something different in country X than you see in country Y, or something different in program A than you might see in program B. But there's a prior question which we need to address, which is simply, how much change do we see at all? And it may seem like that's a fairly straightforward and boring question, but many of our theories about what should happen to welfare states also have expectations, produce expectations, about how much change we would, like, we would expect to see. So, for example, the arguments that Walter Corby and others have made about the importance of the power resources of the left and labor unions suggest pretty strongly, and Corpy himself is quite explicit about this, that if there is a big shift in the distribution of these power resources, that should have a big effect on policy fights and policy outcomes uh, that, that you will see. Now, there's also, I think, a bias built into qualitative work uh, about what's happened to welfare states. And I say this while at the same time uh, recognizing and really celebrating how much a lot of this work has contributed to our knowledge of uh, social provision uh, and to the politics of changes in social provision. But the bias, I would argue, is in the direction of finding cases where there has been substantial change and then explaining why that happens. Uh, and the reason for that is because finding stability or resilience is not very interesting. It's like a null finding in a statistical analysis. Uh, it is, as I put it in the paper, uh, a dog bites man kind of story. Right? Um, and uh, especially if someone has already made this argument, uh, the incentive in scholarship are towards finding illustrations of cases where there really has been substantial change. Uh, and certainly there are those cases to, to be found. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't want to suggest anything other than that. Um, but the question is how representative or how generalizable uh, are those particular experiences. So I think that there have been um, limitations to the ways in which uh, scholars have wrestled with these issues so far. Uh, and I want to revisit uh, the, uh, the issue now um, and just run through um, a series of slides at this point, um, most of which have been made possible uh, by the work of um, Lyle Scruggs at the University of Connecticut, along with some collaborators who have assembled a wonderful comparative welfare states entitlement data set, which allows us to go back uh, for 18 uh, OECD countries uh, and look at changes in replacement rates, uh, coverage rates, uh, and other features of program uh, relating to uh, eligibility and generosity um, over uh, a period stretching from 1971 to 2002. Uh, so here's the point where the PowerPoint slide, uh, it's, I'm sure some of you have probably already peeked ahead um, to see my um, uh, dog bites man um, uh, kind of story. Um, uh, that, you know, that, that, that really, when I look at these slides, that is the kind of world uh, that I think we've been li living in. Um, I'm going to 
I'm going to walk through these slides very quickly. We could spend uh, more time talking about them, and I'd be happy to uh, come back in the um, question and answer period if, if people are interested. Um, but I want to get on to some other issues. Uh, and the basic story in these slides, I think, is a pretty consistent story, which is that you see a lot of flat lines uh, and some lines that have uh, very mild uh, downward slopes. Uh, but let's just um, walk through them um, uh, uh, fairly quickly. Um, the first three slides, uh, unemployment benefit, sickness benefit, uh, and the standard pension benefits, and these are all figures for families and couples, uh, basically follow convention in uh, looking at uh, three clusters of countries, uh, liberal, conservative, and social democratic, um, and showing what has happened to uh, average replacement rates in those clusters uh, over uh, the period from the early 1970s uh, until 2002. Uh, and what you see uh, uh, basically with almost all of these lines uh, is some improvement in generosity uh, in the 1970s and in some cases in the 1980s, uh, followed by either stability or very mild declines. Um, now in the paper I go into what happens if you, instead of looking at averages, you actually run through what has happened to each program each of these three programs for each of the 18 countries. Because the averages do mask uh, some more significant declines in some of the cases. Uh, but I would suggest that overall, the story when you look at the level of those individual programs is, is pretty similar to the story that you get uh, from these broad graphs. If you were to look um, at coverage rates, that is, you know, what percentage of the population is covered by these programs, you would see even less signs of uh, serious rollbacks uh, than you see for these replacement rate figures. Uh, most countries, uh, the programs have actually expanded in coverage uh, significantly uh, since the 1970s. Um, there are very, very few cases where there's been a significant reduction uh, in coverage. Now, in addition to these, uh, this uh, data about replacement rates, um, we can also look at um, what Lyle Scruggs calls his benefit generosity index, uh, which is basically modeled on Esping Anderson's decommodification index, um, but has been um, designed to be more sensitive uh, to changes in the programs uh, than uh, Esping Anderson's um, indicator was. So it basically um, takes 1980 and the average level of uh, benefit gen generosity in 1980 for different countries and then using that as a benchmark looks both backwards in time and forward in time looking at combining replacement rates, coverage, uh, and other uh, program criteria that establish such as waiting days, or uh, time limits associated with benefits uh, to track, uh, to create an index and track changes in generosity uh, over time. Uh, and the next three figures uh, basically show what those trends in this generosity index look like uh, for a series of countries, just to get you, and I, and I picked countries that I thought were fairly representative. I didn't want to give you all 18, 
uh, so as to um, have a, a tidal wave of data for you to look at. Um, but uh, between these uh, three next figures, uh, one that looks at three continental cases, one that looks at three social democratic cases, one that looks at three liberal cases, uh, you again see um, that uh, the lines are pretty flat. Um, in some cases, uh, there are relative, there are uh, very gentle uh, declines in generosity in the more recent years, um, but those cases are fairly rare. Um, uh, perhaps the most striking examples of significant retrenchment would be New Zealand um, and maybe surprisingly um, Sweden. Though Sweden obviously uh, beginning at a much higher level uh, than New Zealand. But even in those cases um, the generosity levels at the end of the period are typically higher than they were uh, at the beginning of the period. That is uh, judged by this generosity index, uh, welfare states are at least as generous as they were uh, in the early 1970s. Now, having thought about these issues now for over two decades, I have to say that I find uh, these uh, figures, especially the last one which looks at um, the three, the averages for the three regime types, over this 30-year 30 30 year period, I have to say I find these graphs pretty striking. Um, finally, before moving on to what we should make of all this, I just want to add a few words about health care. Now, health care is often left out of discussions of welfare state retrenchment uh, because it's a little bit harder to figure out what retrenchment means in the case of health care. Um, it's a little hard, harder to find uh, summary statistics of the kind that we can attach to uh, the generosity of a pension program or an unemployment benefit program. Um, but healthcare seems like a pretty important program to leave out. It's in, in every country, it's one of the two uh, biggest expenditures associated with social provision. Uh, in many countries, it is a hugely redistributive program. Uh, in terms of uh, the difference between what people pay uh, and what people get out out of those programs. Uh, so I think it's worth uh, saying just a word about this uh, and the, the next figure uh, that I provide looks at um, changes in the distribution, uh, the share of healthcare spending, since healthcare spending is going up virtually everywhere over this period. Um, the, uh, I looked at the share that is going to the private sector, which might be, if that were, if that were increasing uh, substantially, uh, that might be uh, one sign of, of, of evidence of, a, of some kind of rollback in the healthcare state. But as you can see, there's, there's relatively little evidence of this uh, as well. Um, and uh, the way that this uh, graph was drawn, it actually um, it probably exaggerates uh, changes that might take place. So that little, that drop that you see uh, for the total OECD at the end of the period is, uh, in in substantive terms, we're talking about a drop from a 74% share that's that's public 72% share. All right. So as I said, um, a lot of lines that are pretty flat. 
or show very modest uh, declines um, from the levels that were reached in the 1980s. Um, but at the, at the end of this long period of dramatic social change on many dimensions, we see systems of social provision, at least measured as they are measured with this data, um, that are at least as generous, and in many countries, substantially more generous than the ones that existed at the end of the golden age. Um, to me, um, this is a, a pretty striking result, um, and surprising at least when one thinks about what our expectations might be uh, when we either look backwards at how much the welfare state changed in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, uh, and how much the rest of the social, economic, and political world has changed in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Core welfare state programs have generally held up surprisingly well. All right, let me turn uh, very quickly um, to think about what we should make about this, make of this. Um, and I'm just mentioned a couple of possible objections that I'm not really going to discuss in the interest of time so that we have time uh, to hear the commentaries uh, and get uh, some discussion from the, from the audience before moving on to a couple of broader concerns. Um, one objection would be that the data ignore uh, cutbacks that are lagged. That is, if someone introduces uh, cutbacks such as raising the retirement age, what's happening in the UK right now or happening in France right now, well, that's not going to show up well in this data if it's happened quite recently. Um, and that's true. Um, though it is still, I think, quite useful to look at a long period of time uh, and collect data at least that carries us through uh, the beginnings of the last decade. The second objection would be to say this all may be well and good if one is looking backwards, but the age of austerity begins today, the true age of austerity. And I'm sure sitting in London, that's an objection that has occurred to many of you. Um, and it is one that hopefully we'll get a chance to discuss. Uh, and if I were going to be there today rather than here, I was looking forward to learning a great deal from all of you about uh, events that are unfolding in the UK. I'll only say in this respect um, that I think the analysis uh, and the evidence that I've been presenting today is relevant for taking a step back and thinking about current events in a, with a longer historical perspective. Um, I thought when I, about, when I was working on this paper that it would be fun to simply collect headlines, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and current decade announcing for a whole range of countries the death of the welfare state. Um, and you would find them all the way through uh, that long period. In fact, the New York Times, I note, uh, has a, a convention of every six months running an article about the death of the European welfare state, and they've been running that article for 30 years. <laughs> um, let me turn, though, to two broader challenges. Um, which have to do with the broader implications of this evidence of resilience. To me, the strongest response 
to this evidence is not to say no it isn't true it's to say yes but in other words my view is that the debate over the extent of welfare state retrenchment has misfired the problem is not that arguments about the resilience of social programs are wrong it's that we have too often drawn the wrong implications from the fact of resilience now this suggestion about how we need to think more carefully about the implications connects to a rich body of recent work in political science and sociology on how we should think about institutional change uh, and I've participated in some of that conversation myself but I'm thinking also of the work of people like Kathleen Phelan uh, Wolfgang Strake uh, and Jacob Hacker uh, who have argued that we need to think about what it means if particular institutions are stable within a context where other elements of the social world are in flux. Under such rapidly shifting conditions, stable outcomes at the level of program rules may nonetheless mean substantial change in the meaning of welfare states, in how they function within the broader societies that they are just a part of. Now, I want to briefly consider two versions of this suggestion that we rethink the implications of social program resilience. There's what I think of as a soft version of the argument uh, and a hard version. And it may surprise you uh, that over the last few years, I've actually been working uh, in collaboration with Jacob Hacker uh, on developing uh, the hard version, the more radical version uh, of this uh, concern, uh, at least with respect to the United States. Um, and what I really want to suggest today, I'm not going to be able to lay out uh, these arguments in any, in any detail given, given the time, I need to uh, start getting close to wrapping up, um, is that I think the most important agenda for those who are interested in the welfare state now and in the future uh, is to think through what the true long-term implications are of the welfare state's impressive staying power at the level of established programs. All right, so the soft version is nicely captured by Josta Esming Anderson's uh, phrase, the frozen landscape of welfare states. Esming Anderson argued quite a while ago now that welfare states have been insufficiently nimble in responding to emerging social risks. That is, his concern is not that the welfare state has not been resilient, his concern is that it has been too resilient. The result has been a mismatch between what the society, what social needs are and what the welfare state does. And then there are enormous inequities between favored old claimants over disadvantaged new ones. Some of the best recent work on the welfare state, and I'll just mention Giuliani, Giuliana Bonoli, Celia Heuserman, and Julia Lynch, explore the dynamics of social policy development by considering this collision between old social risks and old social programs and new social risk. 
Now, that's actually this, this what I call the soft version is fairly discouraging. And you can certainly read, when you read Espen Anderson's work on the subject, his enormous frustration about the incapacity of many societies to respond to meet new social needs. So why do I call this the soft version? Uh, I do so because the hard version, I think, suggests uh, that the outcome may be even more unsettling. And rather than a frozen landscape as a way to describe this, I would describe this version as suggesting that the welfare state might be a kind of Maginot line to recall the onset of World War II. This argument has potentially more radical implications. It suggests that at least in some cases, the welfare state's traditional opponents have outflanked it, achieving their major goals while leaving the traditional edifice of the welfare state largely in place. Indeed, in a new book with Jacob Hacker called Winner Take All Politics, I've developed an account of the last 30 years in the United States that makes exactly this argument. So the next to last slide looks at the distribution of income across a range of OECD countries uh, since uh, the late um, or the mid-1970s. Uh, and how the share of the top 1% has shifted. And you'll see that the top 1% share has grown in these countries. But it has grown much more dramatically in some countries than others. Uh, and the United States wins the prize, though the UK uh, gets the silver medal. Um, and it's striking if one looks at this that the U.S. actually in the early 1970s looked very ordinary in comparative perspective, yeah. but not so anymore. Uh, we have shifted towards a winner-take-all economy in the U.S. And let me just give you um, one statistic to indicate how dramatic the change has been. If you look at changes in after-tax income in the United States over the period from 1979 to 2007, so almost 30 years, and this is before the onset of the most recent economic crisis, over that 30-year period, 40% of all income growth in the United States went to the top 1% of the population. Now, that, to me, is just a stunning, stunning figure about how the economy, and that's, af that's after-tax income, um, just a stunning indication of how the distribution of economic rewards have changed. Um, now, and, and I should add that most of that 40% actually went to the top tenth of 1%. So even within that top 1%, the gains were very highly concentrated. Uh, we argue in our book that this is not just a result of globalization. It's not just a result of technological change or increasing gains to skill. Uh, but that government policy has played a huge role in shifting to the distribution of economic rewards. Um, this has happened uh, through um, 
changes in financial regulation changes in taxation changes in corporate governance and the way in which government policy puts constraints or no constraints on corporate governance and also indirectly through changes in industrial relations policy which have undercut the capacity of unions to be a force in Washington on behalf of the working class and the middle class. So we argue in the book that a winner-take-all politics has helped dramatically to produce this winner-take-all economy. Now today this is primarily an American story although there clearly are echoes in other countries including the UK. But whether this Maginot Line scenario has a broader relevance, perhaps taking different forms in different political settings, is a pressing issue for research. Is it possible for something like what's happened in the United States to happen in other OECD countries? And again, what's striking to me in the US case and the way that it relates to the evidence that I presented today is that these dramatic changes have taken place while the core programs of the American welfare state, such as Social Security and Medicare, have remained extremely stable. So the opponents of the basic goals behind the welfare state have advanced their goals not by dismantling the welfare state, but by going around it to dismantle other more vulnerable parts of the post-social So in closing, I want to refer back to a quote from Esving Anderson again, uh, which has sometimes been used to help us think more carefully about how to measure what the welfare state is doing. And Esving Anderson wrote in The Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism, um, no one ever struggled over spending per se. You know, his point was, don't get too bogged down on the spending numbers because they don't really capture what is at stake. They may tell us something useful, but the conflict is about something deeper. And what he meant was, it's about the structure of these programs and how much protection they provide to people and what they do to the distribution of risks and rewards. So in closing, I would just um, paraphrase Esping Anderson by saying nobody struggled over the structure of the programs per se. It is really about the broader issue of how risks and rewards in societies are distributed and how that might change and why it might change in contexts where there are vast inequalities in economic and political resources. To understand the evolution of the welfare state, we need always to see it in relationship to the evolving societies that determine its true meaning. Thank you. Well, as I expected, uh, Paul, that was... Uh challenging and interesting uh, all the way through, particularly, I think, the, the Maginot line uh, analogy, which uh, I think uh, certainly kept me awake uh, a couple of nights ago. 
Um, but I'm now going to turn, first of all, to Anton to respond uh, reasonably <coughs> briefly so that we can get okay. questions in, but uh, do, do feel free to elaborate I, your feelings I, about it. Okay, I prepared um, a small PowerPoint, but I think given the setting, that is not very uh, uh, useful right now. Um, at the core of Paul's uh, wonderful account of the longer durée of um, the welfare state over the extended period of uh, austerity lies the argument that generous welfare provision lies the, the argument of generous welfare provision consolidation, despite negative pressures and unfavorable politics, and that over the past uh, 35 years. The world has changed massively, but not so much <coughs> the welfare state. It almost reads like uh, the Lampedusa's famous dictum, the more things change, the more things stay the same. If I were to square this with my own assessment and studies of the period, I would like to paraphrase the Lampedusa into the more social policies change, the more stable the core remains, and maybe that's the essence of resilience. And then the question is, is this a fair assessment? And I think not. In the next 10 minutes, I'd like to pick up on two issues. One question is, um, how much change is there to explain? Uh, and, and Paul already pointed to this. And the theoretical implications for, uh, for further development of, uh, of research. And these two issues are at the core of, uh, of Paul's uh, research for a very long period of time. So first of all, my first comment is that I think the the era of austerity, to say that it lasted for 35 years is a bit much, especially when you end that maybe the period of austerity really begins today after the last uh, crisis. If I look at the post-war era, I see more or less three periods whereby two are junctured by, by key political and economic crisis. That is, of course, the Golden Age, which was uh, preceded by the Second World War and the Great Depression and it was a fairly sort of Keynesian demand management uh, uh, um, policy theory behind the welfare state. This became increasingly inflexible over the 1960s and then came the two oil shocks and it needed flexibility. So if the post-war welfare state in the golden age was really the search for stability, economic, social and political, maybe less so uh, growth and that was very lucky. The neoliberal period was really a search for uh, uh, flexibility. But by the mid-1990s, neoliberalism became hugely unpopular in Europe. And here we have this incipient change to what I would like to call the social investment uh, turn. And Asping Anderson wrote a, a lot about this. And here the idea is not so much stability or flexibility, but rather gender-sensitive employability looking for ways to save the welfare state by raising participation and raising productivity and therefore human capital became an important element uh, in uh, uh, um, welfare state thinking. The reason it doesn't sort of have the same quality as the two previous periods is that it's politically driven and in its intellectual theory rather ambiguous. I mean, you can name J James Hackman as sort of the Nobel laureate of this, uh, of this period. 
And also because the whole change from the post-war era to the age of neoliberalism to the age of social investment is of course layered, and we've seen this with the present crisis. The welfare state today is still very much a Keynesian welfare state. I mean, this, this was the huge luck uh, of the crisis uh, um, in countries like Sweden, uh, the Netherlands, and Germany, that there was this buffer of automatic stabilizers. And if you allow for short-term uh, uh, unemployment benefit and at the same time invest in the quality of the workforce, then by the time the German economy picks up, people can go back uh, to work. So this is what I mean with layered. And also the social investment edifice is very much supply-oriented, oriented towards productivity and raising uh, employment. So those are my three uh, uh, periods. If I look a little bit closer, this is the, 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 the dog bites man part of the story, I guess, um, into what is happening in a number of policy provisions that are very important for the life chances of, of citizens. And I can list somewhat eight of these. There's a, there's a shift from Keynesianism <laughs> to moderate monetarism in macroeconomic policy, Europeanization of macroeconomic policy. This is largely followed by an imperative to seek wage restraint in competitive markets and wage bargains and social pacts with the trade unions and employers. There's a real shift everywhere to activating uh, 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 social insurance together with more generous minimum income protection. Active labor market policy spending goes up together with a little bit of labor market deregulation, pension restructuring, actually quite severely, but you know this is what we're going to see in the next couple of decades. I mean, there's this delay element there. And an interesting development towards um, social service, dual earner uh, uh, support as men and women both enter uh, uh, the labor market. And especially the gender dimension is extremely important to this third uh, uh, period of welfare state uh, uh, change. There's also financing redesign, looking at incentives on the one hand, and on the other hand, broadening of the tax base. And in the Scandinavian countries, you see more social insurance fin financing, whereas in the continental countries, it's the exact opposite, a shift from social insurance financing to taxation. And then there is the governance uh, change. If the welfare state becomes more service intensive, then local uh, services need to be administered and new public management and public employment services are, uh, have become very important. The, 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 the element of issue linkage through social pacts uh, um, um, with trade unions, not just about the wage bargain, but also about pension. Uh, we see this come up every now and then. And then, of course, the EU is sort of invading in the policy sphere uh, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of domestic social policy, both as sort of, you know, destructuring the boundaries on the one hand, and on the other hand, raising the stakes or the agenda for this sort of social investment uh, 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 edifice. Um, so my dog bites man story is that at the policy level, if we look at the number of these policy areas, I see profound uh, transformation. A full-scale endorsement of the social investment paradigm in the Scandinavian countries, the continental countries went through the most, the biggest change, a real U-turn away from uh, uh, early exit with timid uh, social investment, but it's gaining uh, momentum. 
third way Anglo-Saxon countries, they had this, this orientation towards social investment, but were unable to finance it through taxation uh, um, uh, and, and, and fiscally. And indeed, uh, many of the southern countries, this development was very much still mated along the lines of the new politics uh, thesis, perhaps with the exception uh, of Spain. And actually, a number of these changes you now see accelerating uh, in these countries, especially in the area of labor market uh, uh, policy um, and, um, and pensions. So this is my uh, uh, story about you know, how much change uh, uh, is there. And then we l when you turn to theory development, sort of my second point, uh, the question is how, do we, how can we explain this? You know, if we have an understanding of the welfare state as relatively rigid and we see the institutions and the policies and the measures change over time, I think we need to do a couple of things. We need to sort of loosen up uh, this idea of institutional uh, 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 coherence. We cannot just look at um, uh, institutional resilience. Um, and maybe retrenchment is also a too binary concept. There's either more or less uh, uh, in that respect. Most of the policy areas that I talked about in different countries as regimes are relatively loosely coupled. coupled and this allows for outward-looking co-evolution, spillover, frustration on the one hand, and sometimes coordination and breakthrough uh, on the other. And throughout this whole story, what you see in all countries, some countries are more vanguard than others, is the decreasing returns of the mill breadwinner uh, 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 model, and especially so in the continental uh, uh, countries. So then the question becomes, what do we need to sort of do in order to have a fair understanding of what's going on and also to see what kind of actors are involved and how we should model uh, uh, these actors? And I think over a period of 35 years, also interests are likely to change. And more important, one minute, excellent. More, more important, I think, cognitive uh, and normative orientations uh, uh, change. And the problem situation gets to carry a relatively heavy explanatory uh, uh, um, load. And this we need to do without falling into the trap of functionalism. And the way I see it, and I think there is where I stop, and maybe in discussion we can come back to a number of these issues, uh, uh, um, is that if we think of actors behaving following conventions, then when a problem situation becomes indeterminate, when th through the conventions of understanding an actor says, hey, you know, there's something that is not working, something that is maladapted, then this could unleash something of a search uh, process in the articulation of new needs, ends, means, and policies. And I think in this Puzzling, together with the powering to come back to another classic book of uh, Hugh Hecklow, lies, to my mind, the true resilience of the welfare state. Okay, thank you. Um, three quick points um, uh, about the past, the present, and the future. Uh, and um, with uh, a cast of uh, 
of heroes and villains, but I'm not going to tell you which ones are which. Uh, and, uh, but they relate to the uh, two of the groups that figured in Paul's um, excellent talk, um, which is the middle class and the labour unions, um, the past. Um, it, there, there was a big debate. There used to be a big debate in the 1980s to which Paul was a major contributor, in fact, almost the major contributor, I would say, uh, about the growth of the welfare state and why it had grown um, since uh, World War II uh, and its development um, during the Golden Age. Um, I, I think it's not too much for caricature to say there were two essential theories. One was that it was a growth, um, it was the power of the trade unions, it was the power of the labour unions, the power of the working class more generally that drove this through. Um, and the other was that actually what was really happening with the middle was the with the uh, growth of the welfare state during the 19 uh, from the 1940s onwards was actually its extension to the middle class. And it was actually the middle class power and middle class development that led to its growth and development. Um, uh, and uh, I participated in that, and I was on, I believed it was one of the middle classes were the chief agent. And I think probably Paul probably um, at least uh, partly agreed with that. Um, well, if that was a theory, if there was a clash, it looks as though what we've seen since um, 1980 is um, supports the idea that essentially it was that the middle class were the drivers, or certainly the middle class appear to have been the drivers subsequently, with the decline of the labour unions, as Paul points out, uh, and the preservation, interestingly, of essentially the middle class programmes, pensions and healthcare, have been the major um, beneficiaries during this period, um, and essentially, it seems to me, re the role of the middle class uh, is reinforced. And that applies to my second point, too, really. Um, the second point concerns uh, an area that, that wasn't really mentioned in Paul's uh, piece, but an area where there has been big change in the welfare state, uh, which is concerned not the finance of the welfare state, but the provision of the welfare state. Uh, if you look at areas like healthcare and education, incidentally, education is another area which, we, which tends to get neglected in these discussions. But if you look at the provision of health care, the provision of education, the provision of social care, uh, provision of employment services, what we're seeing in many countries is a growth uh, in private provision, in non-profit provision, and a fall in the amount of state provision, um, an increased use of market and market-type mechanisms within, uh, within the welfare state, or quasi-markets, internal markets, um, and... Uh, again, the chief actors in many ways are probably the middle classes and the labour unions. The middle classes, in this case, part of the driver for these changes has often been the idea that the middle classes are demanding more efficient, more responsive, higher quality services, and that the only way these are going to be achieved is through introduction of competition, introduction of private sector, uh, and so on. And at the same time, the principal resistors to this uh, have been the labour unions, um, particularly the public sector unions, who are very hostile to um, all the developments in that particular direction. And the fact, again, that it looks as though um, the, uh, the, this, this, this movement is winning or is tending to um, is develop faster suggests, again, I think reinforces the point about the decline of the labour unions as a major force. Uh, in determining the future of the welfare state, which brings me on to the future of the welfare state. Um, uh, and um, let me say there, incidentally, that um, uh, I would commend people to look at um, uh, the Oxford Handbook here, which is very useful uh, on 
both the past and the present, but also a um, very useful piece on the future, particularly, if I may say so, by our chairman. Um, uh, and uh, and I, it's a thought that's been provoked by what Paul was saying um, about, um, about the future of the welfare state, um, and I suppose the possible death of universalism. Um, we're quite familiar with uh, the argument now that the growth in the ethnic diversity of welfare states um, is, or, or indeed of, of nation states, I should say, is actually maybe uh, a factor contributing to um, a fall in support for the welfare state. Um, that actually, because if people do not perceive themselves as part of a homogenous community, do not see themselves as similar to other people who fall into trouble or fall into need, uh, they will be less inclined to support programs that support those people. What provoked um, my thoughts um, uh, from Paul's paper, and particularly his winner-take-all idea and the, the Maginot Lion idea, is uh, well, is the growth in might the growth in inequality actually might lead to rather similar. Uh, effects. It's quite interesting to look at the debates there have been recently uh, in Britain uh, on the means testing of, um, of uh, child benefit, uh, and also, I have to say, if I might, in passing, um, the, um, the destruction of uh, one of my particular uh, programmes, I was a particular parent of, the Child Trust Fund. Many of the debates about both of those issues have concerned, have talked about the rich, and I said, why is it that the, why are we handing out money to, I remember one minister saying to me, why are we handing out money to, to the sons of George Osborne, who's a millionaire for the, those of you who know our Chancellor of the Exchequer, why are we handing out money in these forms to him? Is this really consistent? And many of the debates about that universalism, uh, those universal benefits, have been revolved around this question about should we really be handing out money to the rich? And maybe that's because there are so many rich, or the rich are so very rich, that that is now acquiring a salience and a power. So I do wonder whether the growth of the winner-take-all society, and if it's occurring in other societies other than the UK and the US, and incidentally it is, I mean the Netherlands, we were just talking about the Netherlands, so you are seeing widening inequality, Japan widening inequality. Are we seeing all those things uh, is that likely to lead to um, a death that the next, in 30 years' time, when our successors come to talk about this, will they be talking about the death of universalism rather than its uh, persistence? Thank you. Well, Paul, I'm going to hold you back from uh, intervening. I want to get people from the audience here to ask some questions. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, I'll take sort of three together, I think, and then uh, I'll primarily come back to Paul to respond. Yep. There's a microphone coming your way. Uh, we've just seen probably the largest uh, welfare program for the super rich in human history in the course of the bailout of the bankers. And we have had uh, successful uh, avoidance of payment for the insurance of, against future bank bailouts. Uh, at the same time, you can routinely see in this country Poles who arrive and four days later they're in employment and native British who are in their second and third generation not working. I wonder if I could have the comments of the panel on both these phenomena. Okay, n 
another another question or comment. Mark will be silent. Yes. Uh, microphone coming this way. Uh, I'm Frank Castle. Uh, thanks, Paul. But one, one, one thing that interests me, that your data goes to 2002, which is a while ago. Uh, we're now confronting a situation in which all the portents are of very severe cuts, potentially, certainly in Britain and in a number of other European countries. And I wonder... There is data, and I, I helped assemble it, and others here too, that there were real cuts um, in the era of austerity, though not to the welfare state, to other programs, education, economic subsidies, defence spending, etc., etc. There's not a lot of room left to attack that part of the state now. And I wonder, since the cutbacks before happened in the non-welfare state area, whether there is any room uh, to cut those things anymore. It may be the welfare state's turn 30 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's one over there, and I'll, t I'll take those three together. Walter Chater, LSE, and at the moment TH Marshall Fellow in Berlin. Um, I was just curious about uh, an alternative explanation of what you would say that this is not all such a you know political enterprise this kind of getting around the welfare state and therefore the the, the spending looks stable but actually uh, we we kind of undermine the supporting institutions of the welfare state but rather that somehow first of all there was this this dimension that I think uh, Anton quite rightly pointed out that we have recognized a few entitlements that women have for example in old age security which has driven despite the cutbacks have driven pension exp uh, expenditure and kept it more or less stable um, so that there was an autonomous kind of structural driver that you cannot deny women that uh, uh, um, entitlement, the same then with aging and so on and so forth. So that in a way they tried to cut back but there were drivers that would, despite the cutbacks, keep the spending stable. Um, so in a way you would have to look at who receives today pensions. Would the male uh, average worker still get the same? And he was, has probably lost out but there were others other um, demands that we, we acknowledged. Asylum seekers, I think, are others. I mean, in Europe, you have a social right when you, when you move across the countries and so on. Um, so that would be a very structuralist explanation, if you will. I was just curious what the panel thinks about it. Paul, can, would you like to, since we haven't got a great deal of time, I don't know if it were, um, crowd you out. Uh, if you would like to pick up some responses to these two and any of the other points that have been made from the floor that you'd like to respond to. Okay, let me, um, let me try to say just a little bit. I seem to, I've got a frozen picture of you guys. There, there's kind of a frozen landscape at the <laughs> LSE right now. So, um, but I'm guessing from that reaction that you can still hear can me hear at least. Oh, yeah. um, let me, there, there's way too much to try to respond to everything, but um, let me just say a little bit in response to Anton and Julian's uh, excellent comments. 
uh, most of which I actually agree with. Um, uh, with respect to Anton, you know, one problem I've long struggled with uh, in talking about this issue of retrenchment and resilience and change is, you know, what constitutes a big change? Uh, there's no, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, and he's, and certainly one of the reasons I was trying to set expectations at the beginning of the talk uh, was because it seems to me is obvious that over a period as long as this, you are going to see substantial changes in programs. Uh, I mean, it would, it would, it's inconceivable that you could have all the changes that are taking place in the societies that I described along with the ones that Anton and Julian described uh, without seeing some real changes. Um, but at the same time, again, when you look, at, and we're not talking just about spending levels, we're talking about how many people do these programs cover and how generous are the benefits uh, and how many restrictions are there, uh, you do see, I, I think, striking continuities. I think the data now on that is quite clear, though people may uh, come to different judgments about what the meaning of that would be. Um, I mean, what Anton described very eloquently about the development of this social investment state, I think is true. Um, but I, I don't think it's inconsistent uh, with anything I described. I think it's possible that there's one way to connect what he was talking about with, with the arguments that I was making, which is that the, the relative success that countries have experienced in trying to develop active labor market policies, bring women into the labor market, and so on, uh, may be part of the explanation for why the traditional programs of the welfare state have been relatively stable. Um, by putting the whole edifice on somewhat stronger footing, uh, that is an important element of adaptation which may uh, help to explain some elements of resilience. And this is actually a prominent theme in Kathy Thalen's work on institutional evolution, uh, that sometimes um, you, need, you need change on some dimensions uh, in order to provide the underpinnings for stability in other dimensions. So I think that's an interesting uh, point to think about. Um, uh, Julian makes a, a number of excellent points, uh, and I want to just talk uh, for a second about this issue about the unions uh, versus the middle class, or maybe one could say the electorate, as sources of support for social provision. Um, and I guess my view on this which continues to evolve and is somewhat complex, uh, is that um, one needs to think about the contributions of both sets of actors, that the unions in most countries were extremely important in putting these arrangements in place, in creating the political initiative to make this happen. Um, arguably, and this was, the, this was the core argument of the new politics literature, Arguably, once these programs have been institutionalized, especially the ones that have broad constituencies of beneficiaries who matter uh, in electoral politics, arguably unions become less important for sustaining those programs. Now, they're still important for sustaining programs like unemployment benefit, 
uh, or sickness benefit, which don't really have natural constituencies uh, and, are, and are likely to be supported by unions. Um, and I guess that's why I would be a little bit careful about thinking that maybe unions now don't matter as much for the politics. Because the argument that, that Jacob and I are making, I'm sure Walter Corpy uh, could read our current book and would be nodding his head vigorously at most of it, uh, at least I'd like to think that he would be, um, because what we argue is that the decline of unions in the United States has made a huge difference for aspects of the political economy that do not have natural constituents. So uh, where, whereas Social Security pensions may be well protected, um, the system of financial regulation was not. Uh, and the absence of any organized interests protecting uh, those arrangements uh, made it much easier for the banking industry uh, to attack them uh, and gradually uh, see that they were dism dismantled. Um, and I'll just say finally uh, on this score, I, I think there are very interesting questions about whether the United States is quite atypical in this respect. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we have extremely arcane political institutions, which you probably know something about, uh, that I think make the capacity to organize in politics especially important in the United States because it is so hard uh, for voters to really follow what is going on and figure out who to hold accountable. Uh, organization is an enormous advantage in the American political system. I think maybe uh, more so than it is in most uh, European political systems, though I think it probably matters quite a bit there as well. So uh, one of the questioners was asking about the tax on bankers, uh, and uh, that did not happen in the United States, uh, even though I can assure you that most Americans are at least as furious with bankers as the British are. Uh, but the capacity of, of ordinary voters to follow what is going on in Washington and then figure out who to blame and who to hold accountable is just much, much more difficult. Um, so I think unions continue to matter a lot, uh, but they may not be, at least in the medium run, may not be so essential for uh, protecting these programs uh, that voters are organized uh, to protect and uh, are very well aware of. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, I think we're moving to the end of the time we've got here. So I think the best thing to do is for those people who would like to continue this discussion and pursue the speakers up here and talk to each other is to move up to the senior common room where there's a reception. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, Paul, we can't take you with us. <laughs> but it, but I certainly wish you could, and uh, Howard, I would, not I would certainly drink a toast to you for, um, for leading this so well and, and dealing with the trying circumstances. Thank you very much indeed, everybody, particularly the technicians.